Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show this weekend. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick and Jean. They'll be back next week. And if you haven't heard me on the show before, I'm one of the many advisors here at Edelman Financial Engines. You can reach us at 888-PLAN-RICK or at rickedelman.com. And of course, if you have a question for Rick, why not make a recording of your question on your smartphone or device and send it to us at askrick at rickedelman.com. Well, it's been a hard week around the world with the daily reports on the unfolding situation in Afghanistan, the earthquake, and then subsequent flooding in Haiti The ongoing, evolving situation here with COVID and the Delta variant, our hearts go out to those who are suffering here and abroad. And here in the U.S., it's been a mixed bag in terms of the government response and the effect of the new variant on our economy. And the U.S. markets had some volatility this week because of it. The S&P 500 and the Dow closed at records again, but investors are concerned about the spread of the Delta variant and the potential this has to slow down the economic rebound. The Commerce Department data that was released this past Tuesday showed that spending at U.S. retailers was down by about 1.1 percent in July from the prior month, and that was more than what they were expecting. But as it relates to the longer term trends, America is still on pace to exceed pre-pandemic levels of spending, according to MasterCard. They say that U.S. consumers are ready and willing to spend more now than they were before COVID. The gross dollar volume increased almost 34 percent year over year in the U.S. to about $620 billion worth of consumer spending. But what's really telling is that that is up 27 percent from the same quarter in 2019. Yes, I'm saying people are spending now more than they were even before the pandemic. Now, clearly stimulus and high level of savings left over from last year are playing a role, but it's also increased consumer confidence. What we're spending our money on has shifted also. Last 12 to 18 months, you know, money was being spent on non-discretionary categories, things like groceries, utilities. But we've seen a big shift towards discretionary categories like travel, restaurants, hotels. Meanwhile, and what might be a surprise to those of us who have been predicting the demise of malls in this country, malls have bounced back far more quickly than what was expected. But The rebound is uneven in terms of what type of malls are doing well. And is it only a temporary shift back to mall shopping? You know, pent up demand, essentially. The nation's largest mall operator, Simon Property Group, they just reported earnings that easily beat what Wall Street had forecast. And they also topped the second quarter of 2019 earnings. Retail Properties of America, another mall owner, just reported earnings per share that also topped their 2019 earnings. When malls shut down in 2020, some of the anchor tenants, those are JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, well, they filed for bankruptcy and they closed a lot of their stores permanently. There were also bankruptcies within the mall operators themselves. So this return to mall shopping more recently does show some positive trends short term, but Clearly, there are negative long-term trends continuing. Consumer spending is robust now because of pent-up demand, but will it last? And like I said, it's been an uneven recovery within malls, higher-end malls versus weaker quality malls, and the continued shift in people's shopping habits away from malls to online. I mean, how often do you really buy online from 
Amazon, Walmart, Target versus go to a mall and buy something there. And some potentially lasting new problems for malls are a shift away from blockbuster movies being released in the theaters. A lot of malls are somewhat, you could say, anchored by the movie theater within the mall, and they rely on that foot traffic of the moviegoers who are now, in many cases, just skipping the theater altogether and watching the new release from the comfort of their own sofa. Movie theaters are still far below pre-pandemic levels of traffic. And with the new variants of COVID potentially influencing more cautious behavior from the shoppers, there are some signs that the mall foot traffic is is being affected. But in general, the higher end, more modern malls, the ones with fancy restaurants, luxury good shops, the ones that are usually located in the very affluent neighborhoods, well, those malls are doing very well. But it's the mid-tier and lower-end malls that are still having issues collecting rent. And those are properties that are often in the middle or or lower-income neighborhoods. Simon Property Group, which is the largest U.S. mall owner, has actually been giving back some of their poor-performing properties to their lenders. But even so, the number of malls in the U.S. isn't shrinking as fast as analysts had expected. But it's because of the high-end malls that are not only doing well, but growing. And it's another symbol of the K-shaped recovery. The ones who can afford to shop at the high-end malls are, and the ones who would normally be shopping at the lower-end malls have less money to do so and go back to the stores. So malls may not be dead quite yet, but online shopping will still be the way of the future for most. And there is one young person who has built his business using completely online selling. A 16-year-old high school student whose name is Max Hayden, well, he's from Hopewell, New Jersey, he brought in nearly $2 million in revenue selling video game consoles, above-ground pools on Amazon during the pandemic. Well, his business plan was to resell items on Amazon along with other marketplaces. And in doing so, he was able to generate six-figure profits for himself. Well, he had enough thought and foresight to target products that he thought would be in high demand and short supply, like above-ground swimming pools in the summer. And then things like patio heaters last fall, I tried to buy both of these things and couldn't do so. So I know exactly what he was thinking, and he was right. And he is clear that he never focused on pandemic necessities. It was just those like-to-have types of things. Uh, Max, who is a high school senior, he sold more than $1.7 million worth of products on Amazon Marketplace in 2020 alone. So after accounting for all of his costs, he turned a profit of roughly $110,000. Now, Last year, he registered his business, and he is now a 16-year-old CEO. I hope he's saving some of that money for retirement. And speaking of retirement, a lot of people, before they retire, um, neglect to think about how much they'll be able to afford or spend each month, or what to do about Social Security and Medicare, how to leave their family protected. But I can tell you from my almost 20 years of experience meeting with new clients that people also don't know to ask about some of the other key things like, what should my withdrawal strategy be? How much should I budget for long-term care or for healthcare expenses? How should my investment strategy change when I'm taking income off of it to live? And that's why you should call 888-PLAN-RIC to get a free retirement review and financial plan from an Edelman Financial Engines planner. 
You'll meet with an experienced fiduciary planner who will give you an objective answer to the questions you have about retirement and the ones that you didn't even know you needed to ask. Your planner will look at your current investments and tell you how you should be invested for this particular stage of your life, pre-retirement, post-retirement, any other stage. You'll also get a personalized financial plan, and that plan alone is an $800 value. It includes your own retirement plan of action, an estimate of your Social Security benefits, portfolio recommendations, and the next steps you can take for your financial future and the rest of your life. Call 888-PLAN-RIC by 10 p.m. this coming Tuesday or sign up at edelmanfinancialengines.com for your free retirement review and personalized financial plan. Well, we've been talking about the uneven spending at high-end malls across the country versus the mid-tier and lower-end malls. And while Americans added nearly $4 trillion to their savings during the COVID pandemic, most of those gains went to the wealthy. Stimulus checks, rising stock market, less spending all led to a massive savings boom over the past year. But 70% of that gain was from the wealthiest 20% of Americans and excess savings or savings above and beyond the normal pre-pandemic growth level. That was even more skewed to the top where 42% went to the top 1% while households in the bottom income levels saved less than expected. And this could have negative implications for the economy. A recent study found that about $360 billion of savings will be spent over the next year and a half. But the savings are so top-heavy, the vast majority of the spending is going to be on things like the high-end restaurants, resorts, fashion, jewelry, wine, and other similar businesses that are focusing on that affluent market versus the mass market. The wealthy also are typically spending a smaller share of their savings on consumption, meaning overall spending in the coming months from savings could fall short of projections. Well, in what's a potential break for parents with older children, the White House announced that student loan payments pause has been now extended all the way through January 31st. And they announced this just weeks before that pause was set to expire before the end of September. But they have said that this is going to be the, quote, final extension. The federal student loan payment moratorium began in March of 2020. The CARES Act then paused payments through September of 2020 and kept interest rates at 0% for about 42 million federal borrowers. So if you have student loans or you have a child or grandchild with one, now is the time to hurry up with those payments and pay them down as all of your payment will currently be going to principal. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick today. Stay with us for more on The Rick Edelman Show. We're at 888-PLAN-RICK. That's 888-752-6742 or reach us at rickedelman.com. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick and Jean today. Triple Eight Plan Rick, rickedelman.com. Well, in yet another flip-flop in this evolving pandemic economy, apartment rents are rising fast as young professionals are returning to the cities and the on-fire housing market is keeping many of them uh, renting versus buying. The index that tracks publicly traded apartment companies is up 42% since January of this year. And the median rent has risen more than 10% over the past year, up to more than $1,200. In nearly every major metro area, rents are now much higher than they were a year ago. And in part, that is due to the real estate boom. In Atlanta, 
for example, home prices have risen more than 25% in the last year, pushing more people to rent for longer periods of time. And while real estate and the rental market have recovered, there are still challenges in other areas of the economy that could affect the supply chain, such as railroads. America's freight railroads are struggling to bring back and get new workers. And that's contributing to a slowdown in the movement of chemicals, fertilizers, industrial products in general. And this slowdown is in getting the supply products to where they are intended And it poses a risk of disruption to factory operations. And these labor shortages have the potential to create potentially widespread bottlenecks in the supply chain. Um, During 2020, railroad operators had furloughed thousands of workers and they took hundreds of trains offline. Prior to 2020, major railroads were already looking into streamlining their operations and running fewer trains with more cars. And so those changes that had already been made resulted in fewer workers. And now it's just been compounded and shippers have begun to notice the slowdown as well. The American Chemistry Council said that rail cars were waiting at the shipping yards for more than a week and travel times for some routes had more than doubled, which is, of course, leaving factories to be forced to close because of the lack of materials and and otherwise is slowing production. Now, railroad operators are saying that they have ramped up hiring. However, across freight rail network, railroads reported 47,000 transportation employees in June, which was down from about 51,000 employees in March of 2020. And the weather isn't helping with the supply chain dynamics either. There's been flooding across parts of Western Europe and China that is adding to delays in the global supply chain. Germany, Austria and Belgium all have been dealing with devastating floods over the last few months. And in China, one city got nearly a year's worth of rainfall in just a couple of days. And these floods have damaged railway lines used there to deliver goods. And so For us in the U.S., the implications of this could be the increase in the cost of these imported products. Well, and this could be threatening those Black Friday deals. I know you're not thinking about it yet, but certainly the producers are because these delays and issues could cause retailers to raise prices to cover those extra costs for products like electronics, furniture, appliances, and even clothing. And while we're on the topic of weather... The official hurricane season started June 1st, and it will run through November 30th. Are you living in an area where you have the potential for severe weather to impact or damage your home or property? And if so, when's the last time you did a full review of your homeowner's insurance? Because now might be a good time to check your homeowner's insurance and see how you're covered in the event of severe weather. On top of the increasing frequency and intensity of major storms, the cost of repairing or potentially even replacing your home may be a lot more than you realize. So be sure your homeowner's policy is sufficient to cover the cost of rebuilding your home. Standard policies typically exclude flooding from coverage and also typically have separate deductibles that'll kick in when there's weather-related damage. And in the U.S., according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there were 22 separate billion-dollar weather and climate disaster events in 2020. And depending on where you live and what kind of weather events your area is typically affected by, your homeowner's policy may provide coverage for some of the more location-specific events. But check your current replacement cost. Is it enough given the current cost to rebuild? 
standard policies typically will repair or replace your home up to the amount that it's insured for, but some weather-related events fall under a different part that comes with a different deductible. And so you need to be clear on what that deductible is so you can plan your cash reserves accordingly or potentially just make changes to your policy. Like if you're in the East Coast or the Gulf of Mexico, you'll have a hurricane deductible most likely. Likewise, in in states that are prone to wind events like tornadoes, you may have a wind deductible. And if you're in California or another area that's prone to earthquakes, you might have to purchase a separate insurance for that. What about flooding? You know, homeowners policies generally exclude flooding from coverage. And according to FEMA, one inch of water in your home can cause up to $25,000 worth of damage. So for coverage, you'd also need a separate flood insurance, either through the Federal National Flood Insurance Program or through a private insurer. The bottom line is that everyone should revisit their insurance coverage. Is your replacement value enough to reflect the higher current cost to build? Is your umbrella insurance sufficient? And what's the experience you get from your insurance agent when you talk to them about increasing your coverage? And if you're not getting a good feel, if it's not a good situation, well, what's going to happen if you have to face a claim down the road? It's best to work with an independent agent in general who writes policies for a number of different insurance companies. They just typically have better access to the insurers and can help on your behalf when you're dealing with a claim. And while we're on the subject of insurance, let's talk about health insurance as well. As it relates to the vaccine, there may be an economic incentive to get it. Because getting hospitalized with COVID in the U.S. is typically generating huge bills. A patient in Marietta, Georgia, got a $17,000 bill for a brief stay. Another uninsured man in Miami got a $104,000 bill for a 14-day hospitalization. In 2020, before COVID vaccines, most private insurers were weaving patient payments from coinsurance to deductibles for COVID treatment. But Many, if not most, have allowed that policy to lapse. Aetna ended it in February and United Healthcare began rolling back waivers last year and they were completely done by March. And now insurers could try to do more like penalizing the unvaccinated, but it's not just COVID exclusions or penalties. There is a precedent. Some policies won't cover treatments that are necessitated by what insurance companies deem risky behavior like scuba diving or rock climbing. Insurers are allowed to charge smokers up to 50% more than non-smokers. And in 49 states, people that are caught driving without auto insurance face fines. They could lose their license or even have their car confiscated, maybe even jail. And reckless drivers pay more for insurance as well. Considering insurance coverage should be discussed as part of an overall comprehensive financial plan. And if you don't have a financial plan, why not? What's holding you back? For now, at least, the initial fee or cost shouldn't be a concern as we have a special offer to get you started. Between now and Tuesday at 10 p.m., give us a call at 888-PLAN-RIC and get a free retirement review and financial plan from an Edelman Financial Engines Planner. You'll speak with an experienced fiduciary planner who's going to be able to give you objective advice and answers to your questions. Your planner can look at your current investments, tell you how you should be invested for this stage of your life, for the next stage of your life on an ongoing basis. And you'll also get a personal financial plan. And the plan alone is worth $800. And it includes your own retirement plan of action, an estimate of your social security benefits, portfolio recommendations, and the next steps that you can take for your financial future and for the rest of your life. 
So again, call 888-PLAN-RICK between now and 10 p.m. on Tuesday or sign up at edelmanfinancialengines.com for your free retirement review and personal financial plan. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick and Jean today. Give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK or you can reach us at rickedelman.com. Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick today and we're going to the phones. We'll be talking with Pete in Patchogue, New York. Pete, what can we do for you? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I had a question regarding insurance. I know it's important for financial planning to have all the right insurances in place. And one of the types of insurance that I previously tried to get was a short-term disability policy. And because of some of my past medical histories, previous surgeries, I was denied because didn't really get through the underwriting process. And so I would say because of my past medical history, I am at greater than average risk for having some kind of uh, prolonged medical absence. And so if you had any advice on how to navigate uh, what I should do, I mean, I can tell you what I've been doing. Okay. saving a lot more money. <laughs> yeah. And so I figured that was a good way to do it, have a, and mostly in investing. So I'm not just parking it in cash. So I've been a good saver. Okay. But uh, other than that, it's... Yeah. Boy, Pete, this is a tough one. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you're struggling with some medical stuff. So I, I guess a couple of questions and then maybe clarifiers for those listening who are uh, wondering what we're talking about here. So basically what you're talking about is short-term disability, which would cover you in the event that you are unable to work for some period of time uh, because of some medical condition and uh, would basically make up the lost income, right? And in, in this case, what you're finding is that going out and trying to buy a policy on your own, well, they're looking at you and saying, well, we don't we don't want to take that risk. We think that there's too yeah. high of a likelihood that you're going to use this, which, of course, is the point of the insurance. Right. And uh, so they say, sorry, we're just we're, we're not going to cover you. So I think that that it sounds like that's been your experience. Now, do you work for an employer that has a group plan or a group offering? I had looked into that and it was. It was, it's very hard to navigate. I wasn't able to, I actually am a teacher in New York State. And so I know there is something, um, but I guess what got me from pulling the trigger was I also look at how much sick time I have. Mm -hmm. And I have probably like a year's worth of sick time because I've been teaching a while. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to factor in if I do uh, somehow get in touch and uh, get a policy to be accepted, would I factor in the amount of sick time I have in the type of policy that I would get? Well, you know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think I think it would. But that doesn't mean that you should turn down a group short term disability that your employer may offer. Because you may get sick, but not be on disability. You know, you may get sick for a week here or there. It may not be an actual disability or what's considered a disability. And so our advice would be to not only get short-term, but also potentially long-term disability. So that's, you know, after the 90 days, essentially. 
And and backing up a little bit, many employers offer full-time employees either a group short and or a long-term disability coverage. And those benefits are frequently employer paid or maybe subsidized. So it's not as much out of your own pocket. And you can enroll with with little to no health underwriting. So it's a great opportunity for those who are working but have, you know, pre-existing conditions. You may be able to still get a policy with a pre-existing condition, but in most cases that pre-existing condition itself is going to be excluded. So, you know, if you have a, a back problem or a neck problem, the policy that you've purchased might pay a benefit for everything that relates to disability other than your back or neck. Um, so the definition of, of disability is, a, is a, an important part of each policy. If you are buying it privately, it needs to state that it is your own occupation and not any occupation. And what that means is that you qualify for benefits if you cannot perform the duties of your job. So if you, you, know, if you couldn't teach, for example, if it was any occupation, you'd have to prove that you couldn't do anything, essentially. And that's that's um, you know, that's certainly not going to be as as beneficial. But in your case, I think that you have so a couple things going on. One, you've got sick leave that could cover you in the event that something happened, you know, that was very short. Um, but you should also consider short and long term disability to cover you for things that may actually be a disability. And if it's available through your employer, that's going to be a cheaper and better way for you, given that you have pre existing conditions. I mean, the problem with it is, of course, it's not portable. So if you leave that employer, you can't bring that policy with you to the next employer. You know, if you retired from this job and went to another job that was part-time work or that didn't have a disability plan. So that's certainly a downside. But if you're planning on staying in this occupation or this role, at you know, with the state, of, I think you said state of New York teachers, then, you know, the disability policy should stay with you for as long as you're there. Well, that's, that sounds like... Uh the next phone call I'll make. I guess this is an extension of like the estate planning. If I'm saving a lot of assets, which I've been, and I am high risk for long-term care, would it make sense that I look into some kind of trust, like an irrevocable uh, trust or something like that, if I don't want my significant other to, I don't want the assets to be depleted for long-term nursing and things like that. Is that something I should look into? You're kind of switching gears here. And I don't know that like long-term or short-term disability would fall into the category of estate planning. But now I think what you're talking about is, all right, well, you know, because of the fact that I have some pre-existing conditions, I I think I'm more likely to need to use long-term care at some point in my life. And long-term care is exorbitantly expensive to pay for. So, if I am saving all of this money and, you know, I've done a good job with my financial planning, well, now all of a sudden, if I go into a long-term care facility, I'm worried that I spend down all of my assets and my significant other is left with um, with nothing. Now, is your, you, are you unmarried? I am, but I think that's going to change very soon. Okay. Well, yeah, that may, <laughs> yeah, that may make a difference as it relates to your benefits and also as it relates to just your partner or spouse's, if you're married, rights as it relates to your home and Medicaid and et cetera. So, 
you know, even if you were to spend down all of your assets, um, if you have a home that you share with a spouse, that home can't be used against you as it relates to your Medicare, uh, Medicaid eligibility. If you became destitute and you spent all of your money on long-term care and all of a sudden Medicaid has to pay, uh, because that is what happens for many people who use all of their money paying for their long-term care. So if you were married, you wouldn't have to worry about your significant other getting kicked out of the house if it was your house. Um, if you are unmarried and the house is in your name and they're just essentially considered a uh, a renter, I guess, um, or just a you know somebody with no ownership rights over the home, that could pose a problem for the two of you. So while I don't, you know, I think the two questions are 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 different. They are important ones both. And my advice would be if you're concerned about your and your partner's status and as it relates to your assets and their rights and um, how they're going to be cared for if you're not around, then talking to both a financial planner and an estate attorney are two really important components. And just as an aside, although your disability or your pre-existing medical conditions might make it harder for you to get traditional long-term care insurance. There are other options out there like hybrid policies that might be easier to get and would still give you some protection or really in this case, your significant other or maybe soon to be spouse protection in the event um, that you do need to go into a long-term care facility and it costs a good amount of money. So uh, again, I advise you to talk to a financial planner. I think it's time and an estate attorney to make sure that your legal documents are in place and that, that your partner is protected. All right. Sounds good. Okay, Pete. Well, listen, thank you so much for your call. It's a good one. Lots of little offshoots here of important things to think about. So thanks for your call, Pete, and have a great day. You too. Thank you. That was Pete in Patchogue, New York. You're on with Isabel on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. You're listening to Isabel Barrow on The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK. And we're taking a call from Dan in Perry, Iowa. Dan, what's your question? Well, I'm 61 years old, getting ready for retirement. I am a state worker, and my retirement is with this TIAA CREF retirement. I don't know how familiar you are with that. Yep. And right now, I have my money basically in three spots. Mm-hmm. One is the stock, one is in real estate, and then some in a guaranteed income. I got that split up at like 40%, 40%, and 10% with what I contribute. Okay. I've heard on the show that Rick says to kind of split your money up, don't have it in one spot. Most of my money is in the stocks. I would like to have some advice to split this money up before I retire. Got it. I'd still like to make some money, but I really don't need to be that chancy with it. Got it. These are really good questions, and absolutely we would want to look at how to diversify this. But just a couple of things I'd like to clarify. So you said you're getting close to retirement. Um, What does that mean? How how close are you? Well, like I said, I'm 61. A lot of it depends on insurance. That's I'd have retired already if it wasn't if insurance wasn't so doggone high. You mean medical Uh, insurance? Yes. Okay. Is there an option for retiree medical through your employer, or would you be out buying, you know, a private policy on your own? 
as of right now, I'd have to go out and buy one on my own. Ah. I just I just missed out. Last year, some state employees got three years of insurance paid mm-hmm. if they wanted to retire. Well, I still wouldn't get 65 in three years yet. So if they offer something like this again next year, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd probably take them up on it. Right. So then you'd be 62. So if you got three yep. years, you get, you know, you get through to Medicare eligibility, which is age 65. So your question is an important one. And I think, you know, also this retirement date is an important factor here as well, because if you do retire now at 61 and you have, let's say in this case, four years of paying for medical out of pocket, that could eat away out of a lot of your income sources and potentially cause you to need to draw money out of this TIACREF program. Now, the TIACREF program that you are talking about, the retirement plan, you know, I think for most, you're not familiar with TIACREF. I mean, it's in essence a 401k plan, right? But even though perhaps the underlying holdings within the plan are different than what you might have in another 401k plan, in essence, it's a pre-tax retirement plan from which you make contributions, you spread the money around different areas that are offered, whatever the plan designates you're allowed to put your money into, which could be a variety of funds within Tia Craft for if it was a... Fidelity or Vanguard plan, they would have their own funds that you could invest in. But bottom line is, it's pre-tax, you're putting money toward retirement, and at some point you're going to be taking it out. Now, if we theorize that you wait all the way until you're 65 to retire because of the health care coverage gap that you're facing, but let's understand what you have saved within the plan and any other IRAs or assets or cash reserve that you have, and how much of that you're going to be able to use to fund this retirement that is around the corner. Now, do you have any pensions or are you expecting to receive Social Security in addition to your TIA craft account? Yes, I am expecting to do Social Security and how oh, I even have a, just a smidgen of vipers. Mm-hmm. It'll end up being about $100 a month, pretty small. Yeah, and you certainly uh, want to wait on Social Security until you're at least retired. In your case, you're not eligible yet. Yeah. You have to be 62. Right. But if you're working and you're 62, not a good idea to start drawing for most, in most cases, you know, if you're a person in good health and you don't need the money because you're employed, wait until at least you've retired, if not longer, because the longer you wait, the more you get. So if you retired at 65, again, I'm going to work off of that target and you then start drawing on social security for income and you're going to be drawing income as well off of this money that you have in TIA craft, right? That's my plan. That's your plan. So this account at TIA Craft right now, do you have any idea how much income you'd be able to generate on a monthly basis and whether or not it's going to be enough when you take into consideration what the after-tax number is going to be? Yeah, I'm going to be able to draw like uh, be a little over $4,300 a month. Okay. How much is in the account? I want to see if that estimate is right. 650000 if I do the math here, 4300 a month times 12 over 650000 So that is about an 8% withdrawal rate. They're saying that your withdrawal rate can be around 8%. That is yep. way, way too high, Dan. So I think, you know, your true amount is going to be somewhere closer to, or your safer amount is going to be somewhere closer to, let's say, twenty to 25000 a year, which would make it more like 2000 to maybe 2300 or so a month. 
That's about half of what they're projecting. So I'm concerned, number one, with the amount that you're expecting to be able to draw off of it because of the information you've been provided. But then also, as we think about going forward and starting to draw that money out, you're still going to have to pay taxes on it when it comes out. So even if you can take twenty twenty five thousand, well, you're going to have to pay what I don't know five six seven thousand, depending on what state you're in and your tax bracket, et cetera, and maybe changes to the tax rates, and that's going to further erode how much you end up with. Okay. But a better way to get a higher number, to get closer to that target, is to save more on a monthly basis. And I also want to be sure that you're not putting yourself at risk of losing too much by having as much in stock and real estate as you do versus fixed income. So right now you said 40% stock, 40% real estate, 10% in a fixed or guaranteed fund? Yep. Okay. So you're about 90% exposed to the risk component of the market between, we'll call it stock and real estate fund, and only 10% in something more conservative. And as you get closer to retirement, as you're within this five-year window, I think that your allocation needs to be significantly more conservative, more weighted towards bonds. And you don't have any small cap, you don't have any international, you don't have any emerging market commodity exposure or alternatives. So your base, you know, all of your money right now is in three baskets. And we typically recommend 10, 12, 15 different baskets. So having your money extensively diversified. Now, granted, you may not have access to all of those baskets within your plan, but certainly you need to talk to somebody to not, not only go through what your income projections are, but also to figure out what is an appropriate asset allocation for you, given your retirement time frame. So I think, Dan, you've got to start first with the laying out of the the plan and what this big picture really looks like to ensure that your numbers are all working out to where they need to be, uh, that you can retire when you want and that your income will be what you want or what you need. And then invest according to that goal. So rather than putting the investments first and saying, well, how should I invest that's going to get me to this goal? You have to look at the goals first and then figure out how the investments need to work in alignment with that goal, if that makes sense. I, I don't know what those goals are. Right. Well, we got to start somewhere. And maybe your goal is just tell me how long I have to work to get to this amount of money. Well, that's something that a a qualified financial planner should be able to help you with and say, okay, well, here's how we can get to that number. Here's how many years you need to work. Here's how much you need in the pot. Here are the types of returns that we need. Here are the assumptions we have on inflation. And then you can build the investment strategy around that. Okay. So, Dan, so if you want to get in touch with somebody, give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK or at rickedelman.com. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Well, if you're thinking about Social Security and Medicare, you're thinking about how much can I afford to spend when I'm retired? People don't know to ask what they don't know. It's things like withdrawal strategies. How much income can I take from this account versus that account? What are my taxation ramifications going to be? All of this and more. There's just so many. And that's why you should call 888-PLAN-RIC to get a free retirement review and financial plan from an Edelman Financial Engines planner. You'll meet with a fiduciary planner who will give you objective answers to the questions you have about retirement and the ones you didn't even know to ask. Your planner will look at your current investments and tell you how you should be invested for this stage and the next stage of your life. And you'll also get 
a personal financial plan, and that plan alone is an $800 value and includes your own retirement plan of action, an estimate of your Social Security benefits, portfolio recommendations, and the next steps you can take for your financial future and for the rest of your life. Give us a call at AAA Plan Rick by 10 p.m. on Tuesday or sign up at EdelmanFinancialEngines.com for your free retirement review and financial plan, AAA Plan Rick, or you can reach us at RickEdelman.com. Welcome back to the second hour of the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick today. AAA Plan Rick, RickEdelman.com. As much as we've been talking on this show about the economic gains many Americans have made this year, the fact remains that many of us are still not prepared for retirement. In a pre-pandemic report from the U.S. Federal Reserve, they found that a quarter of American adults hadn't saved anything for retirement. And a 2018 Wall Street Journal analysis showed that those between 55 and 70 don't have enough savings to keep up with their current lifestyle during retirement. Obviously, there are several reasons why we as Americans could fall short in our retirement savings. But for starters, the average 401k balance is less than what your health care costs alone are expected to be through retirement. The average couple retiring at around age 65 in 2021 is expected to need about $300,000 for health-related expenses through their retirement. And that's after tax. But the average 401k balance of the U.S. workers, on average, stood at around 121,000 in the fourth quarter of 2020. So that's 121 in the 401k, but they're going to need $300,000 after taxes to cover health expenses. Something's not right with that math. Now, how about long-term care costs? 70% of those turning 65 this year might need some type of long-term care, and 20% of you might need it for more than five years. So do you have long-term care insurance? And if not, and you are one of the 20% who need long-term care for five years, in a Genworth study, uh, this is their 2020 cost of care survey, they found that the average cost is about $100,000 per year for a nursing home stay. So you would need $500,000 after tax sitting around in your retirement pot to pay for those five years in the long-term care facility. Another issue people are having with with properly preparing, in addition to just plain procrastination, is that most people are still neglecting to seek help from a professional. Only 29% of American workers worked with a financial advisor in 2020. Some of the reasons why many Americans won't work with a financial advisor or don't start that process is because they have potentially concerns over a perception of a high fee or a lack of understanding how advisors can work in their best interest. And of course, these concerns can be true in some cases, which is why it's really important for you to do your research, because while it's true that there is often a cost involved. You might be surprised at the value a financial planner can add, and it might not be as expensive as you're thinking. And it's also why it's important to choose an advisor who's also a fiduciary. Fiduciary advisors are bound by law to work within your best interest. And a fiduciary advisor can not only help you with financial planning and investment strategy, but also help you avoid making the wrong decisions. Or maybe it's the right decision, but at the wrong time. And another issue with retirement readiness in this country is that Americans are just plain starting to save too late. In a hearts and wallets study, they found that uh, one in six Americans below age 55 are planning to or hoping to retire by the time they are 55. 
But a Center for Retirement Research at Boston College study found that the average retirement age in the U.S. has been steadily increasing. It is now nearly 65 for men and just over 62 for women. So there's a clear gap between the retirement expectations. Hey, I want to retire at 55 and reality of, well, it's actually going to be like 65. But the earlier you start, the easier it is and less sacrifice you have to make later on. And that's why you need to encourage your children your grandchildren start now. But the reality is, is that it is hard for young people today. Reliance on Social Security to provide the income in retirement is another mistake that Americans are making. 65 million Americans will receive Social Security benefits in 2021. That's about a trillion dollars in benefits paid throughout this year. The average income of retired workers from Social Security is about $1,500 as of June 2021. And while this amount is sure to help with many of your expenses in retirement, how much is it really going to cover for you? And how confident are you about the safety of this program for the future generations? Because 71% of Americans fear that Social Security could run out in their lifetimes. Almost two-thirds say they're more pessimistic now following the pandemic. And 19% say that COVID-19 has prompted them to rethink their plans for when they're going to claim benefits. More than 10% are going to delay filing and about 9% are going to claim it even earlier. Fears about the benefit program were highest among Gen Xers and millennials. And in fact, 47% of millennials say that they believe they're not going to get a dime of Social Security benefits. While urgent action is obviously needed to to fix the Social Security program, it's not likely to fully disappear, at least not anytime soon, according to experts. The fear of running out comes from the fact that the trust fund that Social Security relies on um, has been running low. And the last official projection by the Social Security Administration said that the funds could run out by 2035. But even at that point, if the trust fund runs out, 79% of the benefits that have so far been promised would still be payable. So granted, it's a lot less, but it's not nothing. And another factor that's likely to put additional pressure on pension systems and Social Security in America is that Americans are living longer. Fewer people are working and a large number of baby boomers are now reaching retirement age. And if you're already there or fast approaching the date at which you're going to be applying for Social Security, then you have to decide exactly how to do it and when. And this is one of those conversations, by the way, that you definitely need to be having with a financial planner and your spouse and your family. And once you've discussed those options and and decided, you know, what are the next steps? Because the Social Security Administration website can be very confusing to navigate. So some initial things to do. Number one is just gather the information that you need. The Social Security Administration provides a checklist for applying with all the information you'll need. And now gather information about benefits that you can apply for, because it may be not based on your work history, but someone else's work history, like a spouse or another family member that you can claim on their record, or even somebody that you're divorced from or a deceased spouse. You may still be able to collect benefits based on their income record. There are three ways to apply for Social Security. Of course, you can apply online. You can also apply by phone. And the third is you can apply in person by visiting your local Social Security office. But be sure to call first um, to make an appointment because many of the offices are closed or are restricting the types of appointments they're taking. After you've applied when your benefits will begin, Social Security benefits are paid the month after they're due. So if you ask for the benefits to start in April, you'll receive your first check in May. 
the day of the month you receive your benefit depends on your specific birthday or the birthday of the person for whom you're applying, right? From whom you're receiving those benefits. But of course, all of this assumes you've answered the all important questions. The most important question essentially is when should I file? Before you sign up for those social security benefits, you need to ask one really important question. Is it the right time for me to do so based on my situation? Because you only get one chance to make that decision when you're claiming those social security benefits and the wrong decision can be very costly. And of course, there's not a one size fits all answer. There are so many different claiming options available. So it's really important to work with your financial planner to discuss your options and make an informed decision. And it's also important the decision not be made in a vacuum. It should be made as it relates to your overall financial picture, your retirement goals, your income needs, and it should be part of a, a comprehensive financial plan. And if you don't have a comprehensive financial plan, you need one. So give us a call to talk to one of our fiduciary advisors to set up a meeting. You can call us at 888 Rick. Between now and 10 p.m. on Tuesday, you'll get a free retirement review and financial plan from an Edelman Financial Engines planner. Your planner will look at your current investments. They'll tell you about your investment strategy and how you should be invested for this stage of your life. They'll talk to you about the next stages and how to be invested for those. You'll also get a personal financial plan. That plan alone is an $800 value and includes your own retirement plan of action, an estimate of your Social Security benefits, portfolio recommendations, and the next steps that you can take for your financial future and for the rest of your life. So give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK by 10 p.m. on Tuesday, or you can sign up as well at edelmanfinancialengines.com for your free retirement review and personal financial plan. I'm Isabel Barrow, in for Rick Edelman and Gene Edelman today. Stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. Thanks for joining us on The Rick Edelman Show. Rick is off this week. I'm Isabel Barrow. Did your family receive a welcome deposit in your bank account from the IRS last month? Well, it may have been an advance on the tax credit called the Child Tax Credit. And the first payment through the Child Tax Credit arrived on July 15th. Well, were you expecting a check but didn't get it? Some parents are reporting that they haven't even received a check yet or that they got the wrong amount. How much you get or if you get it is determined by a family's 2019 or 2020 tax return. Many of the issues with those not getting the credit are potentially tied to just a misunderstanding about their eligibility or because maybe you haven't filed taxes. If you didn't file your 2020 taxes, the IRS looked at your 2019 taxes to determine your eligibility. But if you haven't filed either, the IRS might need more information to process your payments. And they do have a tool on their website to help you enter that missing information. We're going to be taking some calls. We're going to go to Clifford in Long Island, New York. Clifford, you're on with Isabel. How can I help? How are you, Isabel? I'm doing great. How are you, Cliff? Good. I I have a question. I have um, well, I have multi-denominational um, uh, savings bonds, and, you know, they were tucked away, and I pulled them out, and I go, oh, God, uh, some of these are over 30 years old. And um, basically, uh, they're $15,000 worth, and I see that there's, they've matured with no interest accruing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, is there any way I can, you know, besides cashing them in and taking a hit on the interest... Uh, roll them over. Yeah, I, I've been I've been reading, and uh, as I see something, I might be able to roll them over into HH bonds, or twenty-year Treasury securities. Is that 
sound feasible or mm, not if you're trying to avoid taxes so and and just kind of to back up here this is so common i feel like so many people have these like ee bonds I, I remember my grandfather giving them to me when you know on the christmas tree when i was little and how they work is essentially after 30 years they're done so you accrue interest during that 30-year period of time you can cash it in at any point during that 30-year period of time or after but if you cash it in after you're not accruing any interest after the 30 years is up how much interest you're getting is just dependent on when you bought the bond essentially but there are very few exceptions as to how you can defer the tax on the bonds. So if you go to the bank and cash the bonds in, it sounds like, so you said that's $15,000 worth. Is that what your face value is? Uh, yes, currently now it's a face value of 15000 Okay, so every month you wait to cash those in, you're essentially losing value because of inflation. So I would advise you to go ahead and cash those in Pay the interest, you'll get a 1099 from the bank or whatever financial institution you go to cash those in. And what's done is done. Essentially, it's not going to be an enormous amount, right? Because we're only talking about potentially a small amount of interest that you earned. These bonds have been at relatively low rates for a pretty long period of time. Do you have any idea how much you paid for the bonds initially? Uh, between 50 and I have a couple of $1,000 bonds. So, okay. you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's a fair amount of interest, but... It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Now, there, I mean, there are certainly some um, exceptions to how you can potentially avoid taxes on it. But for, for most people, that's using the bond for education. Um, there are some ways that you're allowed to use uh, the bonds for education for a child or for yourself. But it's pretty strict rules as to what your income can be and how you can do that. So you'd need to if that were something you were considering, you'd have to look really closely at those rules before you were going to do it. I'm pretty conservative, so I, I figure I'll just cash them in, and uh, it is what it is. Yeah, and I think also, you know, you cash them in, you can use that $15,000 and put it towards something else that might earn a little bit more interest. So yes. taxes are taxes. They are what they are. You know, it's the side effect of making a little bit of money here in this case. Um, do you have a plan for what you need to use the money for, or do you, you know what you had originally earmarked it for? Is it just sort of an emergency fund? Uh, it's uh, just, I'll probably put it in, you know, I don't want to say put it in the bank, but that's just going for, you know, just, yeah, emergency fund. Let's just say that. An emergency fund. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and while bank rates are, you know, they're pretty low right now, you can also look at CDs. Um, you know, you'll pay tax again on them either on a regular basis, you know, along the way or when you cash them in, depending on what type of CD you buy. Yes. Um, but CDs might offer you a little bit more interest as well uh, than just letting it sit in the bank or even look at a money market. So there are alternatives. Now, nothing is going to be super exciting right now, but sure. you don't have to just sock it in the checking account and let it sit there. You know, you can look at some alternatives and shop around and, and see what else is out there. Yes, uh, that that's um, that's the way I was going. And um, I appreciate your help on that. And I was wondering, I have, I have another question, again, with uh, there's no, uh, no interest accruing, but some of these online bank CDs, mm -hmm. are they safe? <laughs> they say they're federal insured. <laughs> well, I guess it, I guess it depends. Um, but certainly, a lot, you know, there are those banks who don't have brick and mortar anymore. Um, I, I can think of a couple off the top of my head, but that doesn't mean that they're unsafe just because they don't have a... 
um, an actual location to go and make withdrawals or make deposits. So oftentimes that has actually given them the ability to offer a little bit better rates on their CDs or on their products because they don't have the added expense of having to maintain branch locations. Right. Um, you know, yes, you want to look for uh, banks that are appropriately regulated and that are um, legit and that have that FDIC insurance. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't have you shy away from them just because they don't have a brick and mortar presence. Um, and there are quite a few out there that might have some good teaser rates on CDs. But you got to keep in mind that uh, those teaser rates are to get you in the door. And once the CDs come, you know, that once they mature, if those rates aren't good anymore, you got to keep shopping around. So you sort of can't take your eye off the ball as it relates to these um, cash-like investments, it is a good idea to shop around and be open to moving CDs from one bank to another if somebody else has got better rates. Yeah, that's that's um, that's my thought process on that also. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking about uh, actually calling up Rick because I've, um, you know, I don't take social, I have social security yet, but I'm thinking about it next year. So that's really going to put me in another, another hurdle. So Hurdle uh, from a standpoint of taxes, you mean? Uh, yeah, taxes and um, investing, too, because I, you know, truthfully, I'm not really invested out as much as I'd like to be. Okay. So, so if I called, you know, Edelman, they'd be able to help me with uh, just a, like a little plan. I'm not sure what I'm doing yet, but it shouldn't be a problem. Oh, well, no, certainly not. That's exactly what we do. So the first step is to pick up the phone and call. And the next step is to set a meeting with someone that can help you sort of lay out that plan. And you don't have to have it all formulated in your head. You know, that's kind of what we're for is yeah. to say, OK, well, what what really are you trying to accomplish? You know, what do you want to do with your money? And then we can figure out, OK, are there different pots of money that need to be invested in different ways? You know, how much should your cash reserve or CDs be? How much should you have in investments? How much is Social Security going to play a role? Or how much are taxes something that you really need to consider? Because I know people really worry about taxes um, as it relates to their overall strategy. And certainly it's something that you need to consider. Um, but, you know, there are ways to mitigate that. There are ways to look at, um, you know, tax efficiency and perhaps delaying Social Security and taking money from an IRA or, you know, there's a lot of different strategies. So I think the first step is to sit down with somebody. Um, well, the first step is to pick up the phone. The second step is to sit down with somebody either in person or virtually and um, and just talk it through. So that's certainly what we're here to help with is lay out a financial plan and then help you with those investments. Should you decide that, um, you know, should we all decide that uh, the strategy is warranted? OK, uh, I thank you so much for your advice and your help. Okay, Clifford. Well, thanks for your call, and um, good luck thinking these things through, and uh, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks, Clifford. Thank that was Clifford in Long Island, New York. And if you are like Clifford and you think you'd like to talk to a financial planner, well, we're here to help. And if you don't have a financial plan, why not? What's holding you back? Call us at Edelman Financial Engines to get a free retirement review and financial plan from an Edelman Financial Engines planner. For now, at least, the initial fee or cost shouldn't be a concern as we have a special offer to get you started. Between now and Tuesday at 10 p.m., give us a call at 888-PLAN-RIC and get a free retirement review and financial plan from an Edelman Financial Engines Planner. You'll speak with an experienced fiduciary planner who's going to be able to give you objective advice and answers to your questions. Your planner can look at your current investments, tell you how you should be invested for this stage of your life, for the next stage of your life. 
on an ongoing basis. And you'll also get a personal financial plan. And the plan alone is worth $800. And it includes your own retirement plan of action, an estimate of your Social Security benefits, portfolio recommendations, and the next steps that you can take for your financial future and for the rest of your life. So again, call 888-PLAN-RICK between now and 10 p.m. on Tuesday or sign up at edelmanfinancialengines.com for your free retirement review and personal financial plan. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick today. Give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK or you can reach us at rickedelman.com. We're back taking your calls on the Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick today, and we're talking with Dawn in Phoenix, Arizona. Dawn, you're on with Isabel. Uh, what's your question? How can we help? Hi, Isabel. Hi. Um, my question is, my husband inherited a traditional IRA when his father died in 2017, and he had been taking the required minimum distributions since that time using the stretch option. Um, and then my husband passed away earlier this year, and this inherited IRA has now been assumed by me as a successor beneficiary. Mm-hmm. So my question is, since I inherited the IRA post-SECURE Act, am I able to continue the stretch option and take no more than the RMDs or Am I required to fully distribute the account within 10 years of my husband's passing? Wow, Dawn. Well, first of all, I am so sorry to hear of your husband's passing. Thank you. And this is a really good question because this um, new law change that took place as part of the SECURE Act is actually really, really complicated. Um, And I think that it's got a lot of people very confused about what their options are, how it works, um, and all of that. So I I can answer this question, but I'm also going to just take a step back first for those who don't know uh, about this law change and what it means. So in December of 2019, the SECURE Act passed and it changed the rules for inherited IRAs for anyone who or any IRA owner, rather, who passed away after January 1st of 2020. So prior to that, if you inherited an IRA, for the most part, you would then either as a spouse, assume the IRA of your deceased spouse as your own and and begin a a distribution over your lifetime. Or if you were a non-spousal inheritor, you had the option as well to stretch it over your lifetime. So there was sort of two potential uh, differences, whether or not you were a spouse or a non-spouse inheritor. But under the new legislation, uh, a lot has changed. So essentially, as a beneficiary, you're split into three categories, uh, a designated beneficiary, an eligible designated beneficiary, and then basically everyone else. So an eligible designated beneficiary is anyone who inherits an IRA who is a spouse, a minor child of the IRA owner, uh, a chronically ill individual who's inherited it, uh, someone who's considered to be disabled, or someone who is not more than 10 years younger than the original IRA owner. You know, that that may be something like a sibling or a friend, uh, usually not a child, obviously, because you have to be 10 years or less away in age from the original IRA owner. 
that last category of everyone else is essentially trusts, charities, and estates. They fall into that third category, and they're not classified as part of this that we're talking about. But most non-spouse beneficiaries over the age of majority are going to fall into that category of designated beneficiary. And all of those have to withdraw the IRA funds within 10 years of the death of the original account holder. Now, that is the category that you will be falling into in this case, because if this was not already an inherited IRA, the answer would be no. You are a spouse. You inherited this. You are now what's called an eligible designated beneficiary, and you are able to take the distributions using a life expectancy method, meaning over your lifetime versus using this 10-year method. But because the law changed in 2019 for those passing in 2021 and beyond, even though you would have otherwise been able to draw out using the life expectancy method because you had inherited this from a spouse, you're now considered a successor beneficiary and that changes the distribution method. So if the beneficiary owner, bear with me here, of an inherited IRA passes in 2020 or later, the successor beneficiary, in this case you, because your late husband was the beneficiary owner of the original IRA, uh, but now you inheriting that, what was already an inherited IRA, you are bound by the 10-year rule. Now, what does that mean? What does that 10-year rule really mean? Well, there are no required minimum distributions over that 10 years. So you don't have to take money out this year, next year, the year after that, but you must completely distribute the account by the end of the 10th year after the year of your husband's passing. And this really goes for any beneficiary of a previous beneficiary. I mean, anyone who inherits an inherited IRA, regardless of of how long they were taking it or when the original owner passed away, they're now subject to the 10-year rule. So essentially what that's saying is there's no eligible designated beneficiaries. There's no designated beneficiaries. You know, that doesn't matter anymore if it's an inherited IRA. Everyone is now subject to that same 10-year rule. And also, this is not your case, but if the person that you had inherited it from was already taking under the 10-year rule, meaning if your father-in-law had passed post-2020, and your husband was now having to take it over the 10 years, the clock starts with him and would have continued on that same original clock for you. So you would have now been on that clock. Now, that wasn't the case because you said your father-in-law passed in 2017. But for anyone passing, you know, if, if again, depending on when the original owner passed, that clock might have started to tick. So bottom line is it is incredibly complicated Um, especially now because there's different categories of beneficiaries. It's not just, you know, either you're a spouse or you're a non-spouse inheritor. I think that answers your initial question. There's a whole lot more I could talk about on this, but is that clear, Dawn? I mean, I think it's pretty much clear as mud, but in your case... I think so. Yeah, I just want to um, maybe reiterate. I, I think I, I followed that as mm-hmm. complicated as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I am. Um, I, I will need to follow the ten-year rule. Yes. And I need to have that account completely distributed by the end, if I'm understanding correctly, by the end of 2022. 
since my husband passed in 2021. Well, it would be 2032. So it I'm is sorry, the, that's yeah. What I meant. yeah. Yeah, I figured that's what you meant, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. Yes, yeah, so that's exactly right. So it's the you know, it's the 10th that 10th anniversary. So it is, you know, it is 10 years from next year. And that and the distribution again to reiterate you don't have to take anything out between now and then, but you can. So if you wanted to or if you chose to take distributions during that 10-year period, you are allowed to. But it's just that it's not required until that final year. Everything has to be out of the account. Right. Okay. Okay. No, that answers everything. I, you know, that was a, a hard question, and it, I had posed it to a couple other people, and they were kind of confused as well and, and saying that the IRS hadn't really been clear yet on how to, to handle um, that situation as a successor beneficiary. But Yeah, um, yeah, th- that's exactly right, Dawn. It was actually really not clear to begin with. Um, and the IRS had to kind of quickly come out with some corrections and updates because they had originally made a mistake on their website that really confused people um, in regard to how you had to distribute over that 10-year period of time. Um, so they have now clarified. So I'm fairly certain that we have the right answer for you here. But um, <laughs> if you hear otherwise, okay. certainly let me know. Okay. Nope, you answered my question. Thank you so much for your help. I, I do truly appreciate it. Okay, Don. Well, thank you. And the new SECURE Act rule changes and as it relates to inherited IRAs. And I broke it down into really three categories, the uh, designated beneficiary, eligible designated beneficiary, and everybody else. Now, for most, again, that are designated beneficiary, it's a 10-year distribution rule. So that's basically all you need to know. But the complexity comes in when we're talking about someone who is an eligible designated beneficiary, or as in Don's case, you inherit it from already an inheritor. But let's talk about the eligible designated beneficiary. Now, that is the owner's surviving spouse, the owner's child who is less than 18 years of age, a disabled person, a chronically ill person, or someone who is not more than 10 years younger than the original decedent, than the, the original IRA owner. And in most cases, except for some exceptions, the eligible designated beneficiary has to withdraw the balance from the inherited IRA over that beneficiary's life expectancy, meaning they still get to stretch it out. However, if you're a spouse, you also have the ability to then just take that over as your own IRA and make distributions over your life expectancy. With a minor child, there's another complicating factor here because once that minor child reaches the age of majority, now they're not considered an eligible designated beneficiary anymore. Now, the age of majority in most places is 18. So once the child reaches the age of 18, now the 10-year rule kicks in for what would have been otherwise a designated beneficiary, not the eligible designated beneficiary, which they were before they turned 18. So if you are struggling to make these decisions on how to withdraw or what the rules are, talk to your CPA or talk to your financial advisor, your financial planner, and get some help and don't make mistakes because the way that this rule was changed, it is just very, very plausible that it's so confusing that you make a mistake and we definitely don't want that. So give us a call, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. I'm Isabel Barrow. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. You're listening to Isabel Barrow on The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. 
Well, we've been talking a lot on the show recently about the housing market and the home improvement projects. Well, what about shopping for a car? Have you tried to shop for a car recently? Because if you have, you know it can seem almost impossible to find a deal. Car prices have continued to climb. New models are selling in many cases for above the sticker prices and used cars as well are hitting record highs. And in part, this is being caused by a global chip shortage, which means that the inventory of available new cars are lower than usual, which is leading many to then start shopping the pre-owned market, further increasing demand for used cars. I've heard stories of people who found they could sell their used car for more than what they bought for new. And it's not the case for the most part, but it certainly made for an interesting proposition for those potential sellers. But on average... New cars are still more expensive than used cars, but the percentage increase in prices for used cars of late has been greater. The average price for a new car is about $40,000, which is up 14% from June of 2020. But the average price for a used vehicle is about $28,000, which is up 24% from June 2020. So if you're in the market for a new car or new-to-you car, look closely at new versus used. And in some cases, the deal calculus has changed. So do your homework, know what you want and what it's worth. Get financing ahead of time so you can be ready to do the math and see what your payments will be under different scenarios. Check websites like Edmunds, CarGurus, Kelly Blue Book. They will help you to do the research on the makes and models, reviews, prices. Certain types of cars like pickup trucks or SUVs are, as I said before, in some cases, selling for more than their sticker price. Sedans are certainly better prices right now. And if you're willing to buy an older used car, you might be able to get a better deal because you won't be competing with buyers looking for those new low mileage cars. But if you can't find what you're looking for on the newer used market, consider leasing. Advancements in technology, AI, self-driving, it could make owning cars today worth potentially less down the road. And what about the potential for government regulation changes, making gas-powered cars just less valuable in the future? If you typically like to own a new car and you rotate your car every couple years, or if you drive less than ten or 15,000 miles a year, we generally recommend leasing a car. But if you do lease, don't choose options with the leased car. The dealer is going to charge you for them. And then when you turn in your car, you're likely not going to get those options back. Make sure also you get gap insurance. This is to protect you from having to pay the difference between the residual value and the market value. So how do you decide buyer lease? I mean, even with today's price increases, there are still some pros and cons to think about when it comes to buying versus leasing. And it's really how long do you generally keep your car? As I said, if you keep your car longer than seven years or so and you drive more than 10,000 miles a year, you're probably better off buying a car than leasing one. Uh, And we also typically recommend that if you are going to buy a car in a normal market, buy a used car and drive it as long as it's safe to do so. Also, do you buy expensive cars or are you more frugal with your car purchase? The key to the cost of leasing is something called the residual value. And that's what the dealer says the car will be worth at the end of the lease. Expensive cars do tend to have better deals on leases than cheaper cars because they retain more of their value and therefore have a higher residual value, and that means then lower payments. That makes leasing maybe more appealing on more expensive models and less appealing on the lower cost models and just maybe not as cost effective. But a con of leasing is if you put a lot of miles on your car. 
So 10,000 mile per year leases are really the most common now, and they just might not be sufficient for some people. So check and make sure the mileage will work for you and your lifestyle. And incentives for purchasing are are potentially the lowest they have been in years. There may be discounts, however, for college grads or military members. So be sure to ask about any offers or incentives that are available to you. And don't assume that your trade-in car isn't worth anything because trading in an old car is the main form of leverage customers have. Don't assume it isn't worth anything. You can use your earnings to offset the cost of your new purchase. And in fact, because of inventory issues right now, your old car may be worth much more than you think as a trade. The average transaction price for vehicles sold at dealerships with mileage between $100,000 and 109000 was $16,000 in June of 2021. That's a 31% year-over-year increase, according to Edmonds. And switching gears, we've heard much discussion, obviously, over the last 18 months or so about nursing homes and about long-term care. And what about the impact of this pandemic on the long-term care insurance industry? Because at the height of the pandemic, nursing homes were really the epicenter of the contagion. Residents and staff accounted for almost a third of all COVID-related deaths in the United States. And this increased attention on long-term care facilities also increased interest in long-term care insurance products. Now, insurers and those seeking insurance are more interested in policies that allow you to remain in your own home when you need care instead of having to go to a facility. But now there are potentially stricter underwriting requirements. Uh, So securing a policy is harder than ever. And believe me, it wasn't an easy process before. So expect greater scrutiny of medical records going forward. Um, More pre-existing conditions may be deemed uninsurable. They may even hold it against you if you have foreign travel um, or if you've had COVID, the waiting period to apply might be many months after you've been deemed recovered from the virus. Because of the challenges in qualifying, more people than ever are turning to hybrid long-term care coverage. And these products have always had less stringent underwriting requirements to qualify because they're a combination of a life insurance policy and a long-term care provision. They use a different formula to determine your eligibility, making it potentially easier to get if you have concerns about eligibility for traditional long-term care or if you've been rejected for long-term care insurance for something that you would have otherwise qualified you for life insurance. Now, existing policies have performed well in any case. Long-standing long-term care insurance customers had few complaints during the pandemic because most long-term care insurance policies have a 90-day or longer elimination period, during which time those policyholders had to wait for benefits to kick in. And so COVID didn't factor heavily into new claims because of that time limit. Well, if you're thinking about insurance, if you're thinking about long-term care and how it may play a role, well, it's obviously part of a bigger picture financial plan. You may also be thinking about Social Security and Medicare. You're thinking about how do I leave my family protected or safe if something happens to me? You're thinking about how much can I afford to spend when I'm retired? And I can tell you from my almost 20 years of experience that people don't know to ask what they don't know. It's things like withdrawal strategies. How much income can I take from this account versus that account? What are my taxation ramifications going to be? All of this and more. There's just so many. And that's why you should call 888-PLAN-RIC to get a free retirement review and financial plan from an Edelman Financial Engines Planner. 
You'll meet with a fiduciary planner who will give you objective answers to the questions you have about retirement and the ones you didn't even know to ask. Your planner will look at your current investments and tell you how you should be invested for this stage and the next stage of your life. And you'll also get a personal financial plan. And that plan alone is an $800 value and includes your own retirement plan of action, an estimate of your Social Security benefits, portfolio recommendations, and the next steps you can take for your financial future and for the rest of your life. Give us a call at AAA Plan Rick by 10 p.m. on Tuesday or sign up at edelmanfinancialengines.com for your free retirement review and personalized financial plan. You've been listening to The Rick Edelman Show. Thanks for sticking around with me today. I'm Isabel Barrow in for Rick. He'll be back next week. We hope you have a happy weekend.